Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary Episode 43 A Beautiful Truth You Are Not Alone I have so many questions Then of course there's the question on everyone's mind Then I'll ask the obvious question Start asking questions You're the answer son Welcome to Mosaic. I'm your DC Films apologist, Doc, and I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love the Man of Steel and who are excited by the Justice League universe. This episode, we look back at Man of Steel to uncover and discover the beautiful truth in Batman v Superman. It's an exploration of Superman's character arc and the birth of the superhero. This podcast dives deep into the Justice League universe to answer the critics and the confused. The show is not meant to convert anybody, but to celebrate the films that make up the Justice League universe. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love DC films and who love to chew their food. Must there be a Superman? There is. But some say there might as well not have been. Using a single metric, some say Superman was shortchanged. That's the truth, plain and simple. Yet the truth is rarely plain and never simple. What is truth is a timeless, philosophical question that we don't intend to explore. But its complexity is at the heart of why I enjoy this approach to Superman so far. Instead of simplistic Superman sophistry unambiguously declaring to us who Superman is, the film invites discovery, doubt, debate, and discussion to determine the definition. An exploration into the polyphonic, the multifaceted, and the dialogical. A heteroglossia of views, takes, tastes, and avenues beyond genre convention or traditional tropes. It is extremely deliberate in avoiding the temptation to take Superman for granted. It manages to encapsulate a character study with extreme economy. But I've entered rarefied heights of pretension. Let's ground this thing right quick. In the simplest terms, it is Clark the man wrestling with defining Superman the symbol. This episode is more sentimental than analytical, subjective than objective, because it's about what I got out of it, why I love this Superman, what moved and inspired me. And that isn't going to be universal, but it also isn't isolated. I'm not alone. Others have seen what I see and felt what I feel. And this is simply sharing the value and the appreciation that I enjoy, not an indictment of or comparison to others who didn't. Fair warning then, I'm sorry if you can't hear this in that spirit, and yet continue listening. Much of this film is about the consequences of miscommunication, so that would come as no surprise. To start, we turn to Batman's beautiful lie, which is a wonderful turn of phrase and an inversion of the ugly truth. We'll get to the ugly truth, but what is the beautiful lie? Well, it's open to interpretation, but in an interview with Mark Hughes of Forbes, Zack Snyder said that the beautiful lie was that the path of the vigilante crime fighter was, quote, a path towards enlightenment or what is best in men, unquote. And it's an incredibly seductive lie, one that fans have adopted hook, line, and sinker with respect to the bat, so much so that some are incredibly sensitive to any alleged killing because anything that threatens the lie or shatters the illusion may be met with sincere hostility. The redemption of tragedy into empowerment, of anger into energy for a force for good, is remarkably beguiling. We want to believe that our hardest circumstances only make us stronger and that our strongest feelings and our basis instincts only make us better. It is such a beautiful lie. It contains enough truth and is so elegant as to be enticing, encouraging in the abstract 
and fuel for so many revenge plays and fantasies. But when we pause for a moment to really reflect on the totality of the tale, it exposes the ugly truth. The truth is nuanced and complex, so I can't take the time to deconstruct the Batman, and that isn't the intent of this episode. But in broad strokes, we can identify some of the issues with Batman the way as it was, on an elemental level. I think we can sum it up like this. His crusade is too based in his hatred, which results in dehumanization and violence. Now, on one hand, some claim that's exactly what makes the vow not to kill so sacred. A last line and vestige aiming to preserve the sanctity and holiness of humanity. But on the other hand, that's the beauty of the lie. That you haven't fallen. That you're in the light. So long as you do everything up to the line without crossing it. After all, isn't that the constant justification that crossing the line becomes the unforgivable sin that marks him forever? Perhaps in a fairy tale sort of sense, that's attractive reasoning. But in practical reality, the adoption and adoration of violence is an invitation to death, which comes in shades of gray and not a clear demarcating line. You can't violently punch people to unconsciousness with feeling for 20 years on the concrete streets of Gotham without consequences. Not without consequences, which mean indifference to death or disability. Not without consequences to your soul. Yet while we might embrace or just tolerate a pacifist Superman film without a single punch thrown, even the most goofy and tame depictions of Batman demand fists of justice. Zap pow bam, popping on our screens, we love the lie. We revel in Batman's explosive violence. But on the other end of it, the victims of his vengeance are all merely props for him to pummel. We join Batman in his dehumanization. But after decades of such an attitude, is it any wonder that the bad guys just become living billboards for him to brand? that he can't see the humanity in an alien. Virtue requires a balance of loving good and hating evil. Batman's approach despises evil, but it falls short on love. And that focus makes him blind and insensitive to the many good and beautiful things in life in any kind of deep, profound, or committed way. He enjoys fast cars, nice clothes, fine wine, and dalliances, but those are all just passing and superficial amusements. Batman loves Gotham in the abstract, but his last ink of intimacy and sincere love of deep and lasting commitment is to the dead. Batman's vow is a promise to his parents to avenge their deaths in an unending eternal crusade. Batman is not the best in men because he has been limited by the prevalence of hate in his life. The beautiful lie was that the end justifies the means. He could be dark, terrifying, brutal, violent, and extract his vengeance so long as it meant keeping kids from crying in the streets. Yet with the death of a Robin and when Wayne Financial falls, his ends are unmet failures, and all he's left with are his means. His vow has not put him at peace. He wrestles with the nightmares of what he's become. In a crypt, he declares his lasting legacy to be the death of another. Now to be clear, I am not bashing Batman. I love his arc in this film. This isn't the end of his story. I'm only expressing his own insight into himself. Batman's voiceover at the beginning of the film comments on himself as deceived, thinking he was taken to the light. Batman himself is retroactively recognizing the lie, and that he has descended into darkness, still alone, still lost, still angry, still wounded, and afraid. There's more to unpack, but this isn't a Batman episode. Well, we've talked about the beautiful lie and the ugly truth, so we have two metrics here, truth and lies, beauty and ugliness, so we have two quadrants left. What's the ugly lie? 
Well, if you listened to the last episode on Lex, you probably have an idea. By the way, I had so many ideas in my head and topics I wanted to touch on. I can see that the Lex episode went on way too many tangents. I've streamlined it and focused it more in a subsequent blog post labeled Lex Luthor Explained. Yet there's still so much to dive into with Lex, even more to explain, but I can't with my limited time. So I guess I'm disclaiming my content as incomplete and deceptively titled. <laughs> Normally, I like to refine my ideas for ages before putting them out there, but there is no time. But I digress. Let's look at Lex Luthor's ugly lie. Whereas Batman's lie is attractive, enticing, and something that we want to believe, Lex's message is disquieting, repulsive, and horrifying. You are alone. There is no rescue, no hope, no higher power to save you. A good God is a lie, a benevolent power, a fraud to be exposed. God is as good as dead. If a higher power exists, it is malevolent and evil, cruel and corrupt, dark, destructive, and deformed. If there is a God, it is alien, inhuman, and you mean nothing to it. If there is a God, it rejects you and it brings with it death, suffering, and nothingness. You are nothing compared to it. You are alone. Evil is the way of this world, the natural order. Let it reign. That nihilistic lie is not something people want to hear or accept. Yet if this belief is imprinted upon Lex, you can imagine how it would fester. It's why Lex takes such drastic measures to make this message heard. But it's a lie. What is the beautiful truth? Well, we can invert the lie and see what it says. You are not alone. There is rescue and hope and salvation. Benevolent power lives, and it is kind and good and merciful. He rescues and saves. There is a higher power, and he loves you, and brings with him life and redemption. He is deeply human, and you are everything to him. You are not alone. Hope stands against the darkness. Let it shine. Over the course of two films, Superman reveals this truth, paying the high cost along the way to do so. This is an opportunity to briefly revisit my Man of Steel commentary for the first act, which in my mind stops with Zod's ultimatum as inciting the second act. Because it's been a while, let me put Clark's homecoming to Martha back into context. Clark learned of his Kryptonian origins and was granted the gift of flight. Lois uncovers who he is, and they meet at Jonathan Kent's grave. Lois wants to tell his story, but Clark pours his heart out about his father's death and conviction. He's completely vulnerable and says, Because he was convinced that I had to wait. That the world was not ready. What do you think? For the context of this episode, I'm limiting myself to two observations, that it's a live question and that Lois agrees for now. For the first point, what do you think is not a rhetorical question. It's an actual live question. Clark is saying, given these facts, my father's conviction and sacrifice and what you know about me and the world, was he right? Was I? Is the world ready yet? Will it ever be? These are the kinds of questions that Clark has wrestled with for the past 17 years in forming and forging his character. These questions aren't settled and he actually wants and trusts her opinion. Clark is arriving at the answer in a living conversation, not a one-sided insistence. He didn't say, this is the way it is, these are my reasons, and nothing you say will change that. He values her view. That Socratic spirit continues into the exploration 
interpretation of the Superman in BVS. For the second point, Lois listens, considers it carefully, and changes her mind. Instead of being gung-ho about publishing his story to the world, she stops considering him as a concept or an abstract alien, but counts the cost and reconsiders. That doesn't mean she believes that Clark should never reveal himself any more than Clark believes that, but at least for now, there's no reason to upset that status quo. She respects his humanity and is changed by it. When she returns to the Daily Planet, Perry affirms her position, albeit from a more cynical perspective. Okay, back to Clark's homecoming. Here's that two-minute scene. Go get him! Well, look at you! A reporter came by here. She's a friend. Don't worry. Oh. Mom. What? I found him. Who? My parents. My people. I know where I come from now. Wow. That's wonderful. I'm so happy for you, Clark. <sighs> what? It's nothing. <laughs> when you were a baby, I used to lay by your crib at night, listening to you breathe. It was hard for you. You struggled, and I worried all the time. You worried the truth would come out. No. The truth about you is beautiful. We saw that the moment we laid eyes on you. We knew that one day, the whole world would see that. And I'm just... And I'm worried they'll take you away from me. <laughs> I'm not going anywhere, Mom. <laughs> if this were a traditional commentary episode, we'd ramble on about Clark hitching a ride, the cornfields, the cicadas, the dog, the timing, and so much more. There is so much I want to say about this scene, which has only grown exponentially with Batman v Superman. But for this episode, it's obvious where we'll focus. We've done the beautiful lie, the ugly truth, the ugly lie, and now we have the beautiful truth. Martha says, the truth about you is beautiful. We saw that the moment we laid eyes on you. We knew that one day, the whole world would see that. Martha says we, speaking for Jonathan as well, and it reinforces the point that they always intended Clark to be known to the world eventually. We've come to that conclusion in past episodes breaking down Jonathan's dialogue, and it will come up again in the bullying flashback. I point all this out to highlight that Clark considering the concept of Superman the dream of a farmer, meaning Jonathan, is not a retcon, as some accuse, but consistent characterization with Man of Steel. He always believed you were meant for greater things. And that when the day came, your shoulders would be able to bear the weight. Yeah, I suppose you could have been here to see it finally happen. He saw it, Clark, believe me.
It's only when a critic robs Jonathan of nuance and complexity that there appears to be a contradiction or retroactive continuity. It's the same with reducing Superman's characterization to a single metric. For now, let's break down Martha's beautiful truth. Obviously, that truth grows as time goes on, but there's something that they can immediately appreciate. Well, what did Martha and Jonathan see the moment they laid eyes on Clark? They saw an infant in an exotic alien vessel. That single image is filled with profound revelations and beauty. You are not alone. In a large and chaotic cosmos, seemingly empty of inherent meaning, one wonders if life is an exceptional accident with no meaning and no expectation of connection with anything else out there. Yet here is something unquestionably human in likeness, speaking to order and meaning in the cosmos. That for all the differences that there should be, we're impossibly the same and kin. The infant is innocent, fragile, adorable, and needs Martha and Jonathan. The baby's vulnerability is an invitation to relationship and love. Martha and Jonathan love Clark with their all, and he in turn loves them. Contrast that against Lex's lie. Doomsday arrives destructive, invincible, abominable, and self-sufficient. Doomsday is repulsive to all and does not hesitate in striking out at his creator. Likewise, Lex sheds no tears over Doomsday's death. Contrast this against Bruce's lie. Alone and violent, I make myself strong. Yet here, together and vulnerable, we are made strong. Transmission of a vulnerable, needy, fragile, innocent across the stars is itself a statement. Desperation, certainly, but a glimmer of hope in the darkness. Whomever sent this child had hope. Dreams for this baby. Faith that their brethren would receive the infant as intended. And he was. And what he represented by those who sent him intermingled with those who received. Martha and Jonathan did not have, but desperately wanted, a child. They had hoped and dreamed. And this baby represented their dreams realized unconditional adoption and acceptance. Out there, among the stars, across the cosmos, Martha and Jonathan beheld the beautiful truth that we're not alone, and we have in common love, hope, dreams, and innocence. All that makes it worth being human, we share with the stars. And one day, the whole world would see that. It all sounds incredibly romantic, and you wonder why the Kents don't start running door-to-door -door declaring the good news. And we have to go back to the complexity of truth and the need for nuance. Remember back when we started with Batman, we pointed out how his approach was out of balance, how his hatred of evil left him blinded to good. Well, a love of good without a hatred of evil is also unbalanced. If there's no evil in your worldview, no wrongs to right, no injustice to fight, then you are blind to the suffering of others. You are cut off from compassionate character. You are robbed of realism and your service is stifled. You have to see the evil in the world to know how to respond to it. The Kents were no fools and they saw the world as it was and knew Clark had to wait. It was important to keep in balance. Not stare so long into the abyss as to lose all hope, but not to ignore the world as if it had no impact. To love good and hate evil as appropriate. It isn't to say we don't falter in keeping this balance all the time, but overall, the Kents taught Clark well, and he represents a virtuous example. We know this because unlike the Batman haunted by his nightmares and unable to sleep, Clark is able to be at peace and obtain equilibrium. At the end of the first act in Man of Steel, Clark at the moment, was satisfied with life. If Zod never invades, he had contentment and identity, family and a friend, and he had the time to find out what he should do next. 
Similarly, at the end of the film, Superman enters a honeymoon phase with the world. His actions are clear and he's regarded as a hero. In his personal life, he's fully committed to and in love with Lois. If Lex never finds the kryptonite, he'd be content to live out his life mostly in this way. He is at peace with his way of life, and it's why he's initially in denial at the end of the love affair. He only wants to look at the good and not count the cost but the film refuses to let that get taken for granted. Just as Man of Steel refused to take Clark's alien heritage for granted, Batman v Superman refuses to let the concept of the Superman go unexplored. Man of Steel was an exploration of Clark's character and his personal journey to find acceptance and purpose. He achieves that by the end of the film. We learn who Clark is as a man, hence the title. However, Man of Steel only touches upon the world's reaction to the concept of the Superman, and the film essentially ends before Clark can explore the concept himself, outside of a world-ending crisis. One of the aims of Batman v Superman is to explore that open-ended question, what is the Superman? What's really being discussed is, what is a superhero in a world where superhero isn't a concept, isn't defined? and where the Superman is the best way they can describe something coming into being even as it's being discussed. The film is conversing with the world. What would it take to create this concept as we understand it if we didn't take it for granted or as an assumption? The filmmakers are conversing with their world built on this premise and deliberately avoiding shallow shortcuts, telling the truth of the persistence and sacrifice it takes to make the superhero exist. Must there be a Superman? Many viewers wanted the answer to be expressed clearly and directly, without ambiguity or alternatives. But that's the very pitfall that the character has faced throughout his modern history. Superman has been hamstrung by the weight of everyone's expectations. They're disinterested in who he is as a genuine character, and they only want the caricature. And doubtless, there's value and comfort in the caricature. Something that's unerringly right, free of doubt, filled with certainty, and always hopeful. Yet, it's those exact same characteristics which render the caricature of Superman divorced from all substantive reality and only suitable for fairy tales. To me, the character and person of Superman is stronger, more meaningful, more applicable, and more inspiring than that. Within all of us is a struggle between wanting to do good and the things which hold us back. The cartoon caricature of Superman lacks that struggle. He's routinely maligned as unrelatable because he has the power to overcome anything, including doubt, decision-making, or moral failing. One critic proposes Superman's moral compass as inherently right and laments its absence in Batman v Superman. But how is a mighty moral automaton meant to be inspiring? In my view, it robs Superman of his single most relatable and inspiring aspect, his psychology. The caricature is an automaton unfit to make any kind of moral decision beyond completely superficial ones. When placed into a moral dilemma, the only solution is for him to be written out of the dilemma. And the problem with this approach to Superman is that it compounds everything about him which has caused his modern decline in the eyes of those who have turned him into a cartoon, a parody of himself, mindless moral absolutes, effortless overcoming, escaping consequences, undefeatable and invincible, completely confident and competent, out of touch, out of step, which all get repeated in slogans and shorthands, Superman as too perfect, too powerful, unrelatable, and boring. I understand the appeal of the nostalgic comfort food, looking for a hit of inspiration and encouragement to 
feel right, strong, and justified. There is a place for that kind of feeling, but it grows insipid all too quickly if it isn't truly tested, if it isn't arrived at in a meaningful and psychological way. It's not worth putting the character in such a small box on the big screen with only one note to strum again and again until it loses all impact. Even the remarkable Christopher Reeve could only strike that chord twice at best, all so they can just return to mocking him, ignoring him, and taking him for granted afterwards. Inspiration doesn't come on demand or command. How demeaning is it to have the audiences cross their arms saying, inspire me, make me moral. A one-sided way will work sometimes, and it's okay for a sometimes Superman, but it's also so easy to take for granted. And I recognize that we're discussing a straw man along a subjective spectrum. So all I can say is that I err on the side of psychology over an unerring symbol. And honestly, I believe the former is better equipped to give us both than the more shallow saint. But reasonable minds will differ. Instead of glossing over the elements of psychology of Superman, so far the films have made a calculated effort to rehabilitate cinematic Superman for modern audiences, who are so used to taking him for granted. The film practices what it preaches and engages the audience in a conversation about Superman. Instead of simply declaring and telling you who Superman is so that you can go on taking him for granted, it demands a dialogue. You see and hear different points of view, and that approach allows those views to be weighed, tested, and measured. Cutting back on Superman's lines fosters that debate and allows that discussion. Superman speaking too much and too definitively kills that conversation completely. There's little point to exploring different viewpoints on Superman if he speaks with authority about himself, his role, and his characterization. The film explicitly wants you to question, to wonder, to doubt, to be conflicted, and to decide. Not just mindlessly agree with the sweetest sayings, not to just prattle off truth, justice, and the American way without meaning or application. Not to just start with the assumption of Superman's good, irrespective of his psychology. The film didn't want you to take him for granted and to take him or his choices as a certainty. Certainty is the absolute opposite intention of this film, no matter how badly some crave it, because we live in a world of uncertainty. The film is showing us how to cope with and overcome it, not with blind certainty, but with persistent wrestling and hope not with prescribed absolute positions without nuance, but in lively conversations. And it shows Superman so much respect as a character and as a concept to show that he survives it all. Unlike the caricature, he can be subjected to moral dilemmas and their consequences. Unlike the caricature, he can be questioned, challenged, and condemned, and still emerge as an ideal. The declarative version of Superman survives only one-sided storytelling, and it works within the illusion of the story. But as soon as the audience is outside of that, and starts to criticize and question, it falls apart against the hard light of reality, truth, and common sense. And Superman goes back to being just a fairy tale we tell ourselves. Whether the film does it or not, Superman is being questioned. The film simply has faith that Superman is stronger and survives. The nostalgic impulse is to imagine that it was all better before, as if the modern examination wasn't a reaction to anything. But longtime fans of this show, in past episodes, have heard clips from the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and on of audiences then denigrating and questioning and skeptical of the Superman. The filmmakers aren't inventing doubt, but addressing it, not with blinders, but deliberation. Critics who 
condemn this approach as an indictment of Superman or as casting him as Dr. Manhattan are acting as if Dr. Manhattan wasn't the embodiment of and a response to questions already being asked of Superman. The story simply cuts out the middleman and answers those issues head on, knowing that Superman can take it, thrive, and overcome. If even his cynical deconstruction could make it through, Superman would smash it. Superman as a character with a consistent and believable psychology prevails, as does Superman as a concept, symbol, icon, and inspiration. The Superman mythos is more than robust enough to explore without requiring tropes to succeed. And lest this seem like something entirely my own invention, let me read you something that Snyder wrote in 2008 for MTV. Quote, Too often, I think that studios and filmmakers have a preconceived notion of what audiences' expectations will be based on a film's genre. I believe this approach often sets a course that funnels many projects down a familiar pathway with comfortable choices and safe decisions. And I'll be the first to admit that sometimes this actually works, creating cinematic comfort food that delivers and satisfies. But more often than not, it leaves me as a viewer dissatisfied, wanting more and wishing I didn't know what was waiting for me around every corner. That's why I like creating projects that are self-aware. In my opinion, the trick is being self-aware without becoming self-conscious, having an awareness of the project's roots, but not being stifled by the typical genre preconceptions. End quote. Obviously, this sets up the film to be more confrontational, rather than simply an affirmation of what you already knew, already expected, and what you were already certain of. We touched on this last episode, and again, I'm not saying that it's the sole source or justification for criticism, but it's definitely a recurring theme raised. It's very much a matter of taste and execution, and one of the things that appeals to my taste, and which was executed fairly well, is the complexity of truth. Much of that is captured in Senator Finch's line, good is a conversation. Now, this has been condemned as an endorsement of moral relevance, relativism. Surely things like good and truth are absolute. Conversation sounds like compromise. Well, to me, a conversation isn't about compromising your principles, but navigating their complexity. It's not a statement about whether those principles are wrong or right, absolute or not, but that we need help when the ideals that we all hold come into conflict. Even if the ideal exists as an absolute in a democracy, we need it communicated to the people in a conversation so that we can agree to it and accept it. It's not enough that some book contains the perfect policy as an absolute, the people must be persuaded to understand and adopt it in conversation. Even if your ideals are embodied in laws, scripture, or philosophy, we need counsel, divinity, or philosophers to illuminate them, apply them, and give them life beyond the abstract. It's why we have lawyers and judges and not just code books run by robots. It's why we have priests and prayer and not just a rule book. It's why we have debates and democracy and not just universal agreement. The Africa incident shows a number of principles that we can agree upon. Nations are sovereign and borders should be respected. Innocence should not be taken hostage, threatened, harmed, or killed. People should protect the ones they love. People should not cause others to be harmed. Evil should be stopped. Now, depending on how you interpret and break down the situation, I'm sure you can raise additional or alternative principles. And the issue is obvious. There's no way that all of these principles can be preserved simultaneously to the same degree in timely fashion. It isn't an issue of moral relativism or decline, but complexity that we can't escape in the real world. When people say things like, the law's the law, or Superman is dot dot dot, it's often an attempt to unnecessarily simplify an otherwise nuanced notion. That lack of nuance, lack of depth, has been depicted in Superman before. Easy as pie, didn't I tell you? I like pie. You're about to go on a diet. 
Superman! Blast him! Why don't you two cool off? Got a couple of big fish, Superman. And without a net. Back to the tank with you two. Up, up, and away! Maybe this time they'll learn that crime doesn't pay. Wow, okay. <laughs> That's, uh, wow. It never occurred to me that the S stood for silly. It wasn't that bad. When have you ever said crime doesn't pay? Well, you can take the kid out of the cornfield. The producer said it would be inspirational. Similarly, Superman prioritizing order and security above all else sacrifices the complexity of conversation for a tragic tyranny. Truth can be complex and not always clear-cut. We've talked about how Man of Steel was extremely deliberate in avoiding showing any one profession as all good or all bad in the past. You have generals, scientists, soldiers, etc. on each side. In Batman v Superman, it is extremely deliberate in showing how every source of strength and beauty also creates the potential for weakness and ugliness, that our choices matter, and that there is a cost to everything worth doing and worth having. Let's just examine a few of the many examples in Batman v Superman, not to cover them comprehensively, but to make the point. Certainly, the truth of existing as a public figure and concept is complex. It allows Superman to act as a symbol, to give people hope, but it also subjects him to scrutiny and the sacrifice of his personal life. Putting himself out there can mean something, but it also allows people to discuss the meaning. Keep this duality in mind, knowing that anything can be twisted in the eyes of a detractor. Critics like Keefe see only what they want to see. Contemplation and prudence called passivity. Dialogue called compromise. Conversation called reaction. Action called inevitability. Decisions as destiny. Dependence as deficiency. You can learn to discern and discriminate for yourself those who are actually attempting a dialogue versus those determined to see only support for the worst. Critic Keefe has literally papered his wall with Superman saving people and doing good, but sees only something which serves to fuel his hatred. Another way this duality is expressed is in the monument in Heroes Park. It acts as a message of honor, but it can be used to direct a message of hate. The statue itself presents this with its pose, an invitation to lift humanity up as a hopeful intention. However, Wallace Keefe uses that invitation to climb up, to do evil, and spark hate. That kind of possibility exists with almost every attempt to reach out. Part of the beautiful truth is that you are not alone presented as words of comfort, but it can also represent a threat, which is how it heralds Zod's ultimatum. First contact with anyone or anything is the beginning of a conversation. You have an opportunity for acceptance, an ally, a friend. It also creates the possibility of rejection, an adversary, an enemy. Clark is completely vulnerable with Lois, which could mean complete betrayal, but also incredible intimacy after establishing trust and empathy. Clark already knew isolation and loneliness and was willing to be vulnerable. In return, he has a partner, love, encouragement, passion, and a purpose, strength to save the world. However, loving Lois could be counted a cost or liability, liable to make him more brash, open to blackmail, and the possibility of being so wounded as to want to rule the world and tame it as a tyrant. To have a Superman who is so sensitive, compassionate, and psychological is one that is rich and real, but also susceptible to discouragement and doubt. I'm sure you can think of the double-sided 
nature of other good things in the film, but it goes both ways. Although Batman says, do you bleed, you will, as a threat, it ends up as the ultimate expression of Martha's beautiful truth. Superman can bleed and does. He's mortal. He is human. He is us. Truth can be beautiful, but also complex, paradoxical, and sometimes ugly. Simply saying sweet nothings without cost or consequence is safe, surely, but I find the conversation more meaningful. Anyone can blow into a microphone and say something inspiring, but when it doesn't come with a cost that's counted, weighed, and paid, it often has no impact. Batman v Superman very much tries to strike up a conversation with its audience, a high-wire act that not everyone is ready to engage in, and which opens the possibility of pundits pushing you down, rather than engaging and crossing together. I think certain measures could have been made to shore up the safety net, but that's another show. The film wants you to look and listen carefully, to think about things, turn them over in your mind, and be rewarded in turn. It doesn't just want to be a one-sided dictation, telling us everything that we're supposed to know and feel, and the risk of that is, of course, that some won't engage or come to wrong or antagonistic conclusions. But the reward is that people who approached it with an open and accepting mind come away with a much greater experience. Let me just give you a few examples to make the point. And again, like before, not a comprehensive catalog or analysis. From the opening moments of the film, we're intercutting between time and place and then confronted by twisted time in the form of slow motion and then crossing space with the drop of a single pearl where it doesn't belong. If you don't want to engage, this is all just style, and if you're hostile, it's at the sacrifice of substance. But if you enter the conversation with an open mind, you recognize that reality is warping and the film is saying something about reality in this film and about dreams. The engaged audience soon has their interpretation affirmed, with the impossible occurring with the bats lifting Bruce, and then the overt declaration by Bruce that, in the dream, they took me to the light. A beautiful lie. The engaged are nodding their heads. Okay, so this film is speaking to me. It's asking me to interpret and confirming. The dismissive say, so that was all a dream? Okay. They don't get anything out of it then or later. The engaged recognize that they should interpret what Bruce is saying. What's the lie? Then they look for that to be confirmed in the film, for the truth to be exposed, and for Bruce to be ultimately redeemed from the lie. And indeed, the film does all those things. They'll ask themselves, which Bruce is saying this? when and with what perspective, gaining insight. Along similar lines is Superman's lack of lines. Yes, dialogue is more definitive, but it's limiting in that respect too. All too often, they're taken as nothing but literal and superficial, and so insight doesn't go beyond what people say. You can be dismissive of his facial expression and reduce his feelings to, he feels bad, but without dialogue, you're encouraged to empathize, to put yourself in his shoes, to imagine and think through how he feels, and in the end, it can be a richer experience experience than anything he could have said. That isn't to say that added lines, say from an ultimate cut, won't make such interpretation easier, but if you can get there on your own, it's a great exercise in empathy. And if you can't, lines help. Similarly, confrontational lines are meant to make the audience stop and empathize. If Martha stopped at Be Their Hero, there's nothing more to analyze or consider. But because Martha says something seemingly controversial or confronting, the film is asking you to engage in that conversation, to think about why why Martha would say something like that to understand and empathize with her and infuse that scene with more sense of her character than just what's on the screen. When Superman says, no one stays good in the world, it's expressly meant to engage you. And if you don't have an open mind or compassion or empathy, it's easy to be quick to condemn and reject and declare it as wrong. But if you work it through, your appreciation of Superman's characterization deepens 
It shows the doubt and the struggle that he has to overcome to keep to his principles, the willful psychological choices that he has to make, and his strength of character. Rather than an effortless reflex that secures Batman's safety as a certainty, irrespective of the consequences to his mother. Last example, and again, not even scratching the surface, let me point out that Lois hides the bullet when she hears Clark coming home. Then when she busts into the staff meeting and presents it, there's an exchange of looks between Lois and Clark before she asks to be flown to Washington. When you work through that, Lois and Clark each become more interesting, as well as their dynamic. Suddenly, Lois's absence becomes a facet of Clark's next few actions. Obviously, putting this into the audience's hands is a huge risk, but it's an ambitious effort. The effort is what makes things compelling. We want Superman to be somebody who takes the weight and the responsibility of his powers seriously, who considers his ethics and actions carefully and thoughtfully. Characters like Batman can afford to be more certain because they don't have the same scope of power, but even then, the film shows the downfall of that kind of certainty. We get to see Superman's journey tackling criticism and the construction of his moral compass. In Man of Steel, we have a sense of Clark's character and journey. He wants to help, but he fears rejection. As a deeply introspective person, Clark wrestles with this tension for years. He's patient, but not inhumanly so. His temper can be tested when he sees injustice. Lois accepts him, which gives him the strength to reveal himself and save the world. And at the end of the film, he's excited about what that means. In the nearly two years between Man of Steel and BVS, he's living with Lois and on the brink of engagement. He has a challenging professional job and a calling which allows him to exercise his gifts. The people hail him as a hero and let him do his thing. His character hasn't changed overnight. In Man of Steel, he told Lois that he didn't want his story to be told. And that isn't some random affectation. It's an interpretation of being mild-mannered, a humble farmer, and somebody who prioritizes his secret and is still seeking out what his impact on the world is. He's still introspective, private, and contemplative. Saving people doesn't suddenly turn him into a chatty extrovert, or confident in front of the camera, or a person to start preaching from a pulpit. At the same time, he doesn't retreat back into the shadows. He wants to help, and he knows the suit is a part of that. Lois is a part of that, and encourages that. With all that she's seen and knows, she's gone from, well, here, it's an S, to, this means something. Living in Metropolis, Lois is Superman's sole source of acceptance of all aspects of his identity. Martha tolerates Superman. It makes him happy. It does good in the world. But Clark is still her baby boy. So it's understandable that Clark is fiercely protective of Lois and defensive when she questions taking it all away. I'm saying thank you for saving my life. I'm saying there's a cost. I just don't know if it's possible for you to love me and be you. Lois has come to see the value of the Superman as possibly more important than her relationship to Clark. And that's an incredibly threatening thought to Clark. He went through everything in Man of Steel to gain acceptance, and he has it in Lois, who is proposing the possibility of withdrawing for the sake of the Superman. Something that he didn't grow up with, didn't plan on being, and wasn't explicitly raised to be. Must there be a Superman? For Clark, the answer was no for 33 years. He's happy to be the Superman, but that's a new thing that's only just come into his life. Until he discovered flight, he never had to think about how his power could affect the world, only his secret. In a world without superheroes, the Superman is a position, a role, a symbol, separate from his identity as a person from the start. It's not a given or an assumption. Even if it's a duty, what does it mean? He didn't just suddenly know everything the Superman would mean when he donned the cape. It's not like there were a set of instructions or a pre-existing concept to explain to him the cause.
cost. A brief digression. Clark knows he wants to help, to serve the world, but he only knows how to feed them, not how to teach them to fish yet. In Man of Steel, he's raised as a farmer, he fishes, and he supports the service of spirits. And here, he was going to cook as a surprise, and the next morning he does, sunny side up. As subtext, consider that it's Clark that feeds the people, but Lex's lie, who's hungry. Superman can't keep doing it all alone. Put a pin in this, back to the tub. The truth of his humanity is that his characterization is incredibly human and consistent. Confronted with the consequences of concluding his honeymoon, he's in denial. He doesn't want to discuss the hearings. When Lois raises the cost, he doesn't want to count it. Instead, he tries to comfort Lois and reaffirms their bond. But denying ugly truths doesn't make them go away. We see how subsequent reports start to get to Clark, and Lois knows it. She sees him taking the criticisms to heart and how it weighs on him. She knows that the Superman is a part of Clark, one of his dreams and aspirations, and it hurts him to have the symbol criticized and torn down. So she asks to go to Washington to defend her man. However, imagine for a moment how Clark takes it and the disconnect he might feel. The last time Lois tried to discuss this, he didn't want to. Lois threatened to end their relationship for the sake of the Superman, and Clark tried to reaffirm his love for her. Essentially, he wanted her to drop this and stay with him. Instead, she's leaving to defend the Superman with a bullet angle she had hidden from him. Is the Superman more important to her, to the world? than him? And this plays perfectly into Clark's line. When you assign a story, you're making a choice about who matters and who's worth it. That line layers with the reporting about him and his choice of story, but also Lois's decision to leave him to defend the Superman. This is by the person who knows him intimately, accepts him, who is his entire world. But without a conversation, with a miscommunication, can you imagine the feeling that even without the traditional secret identity triangle, Lois Lane is selecting the Superman over him. This is just one facet of the situation, but you can see how it plays out in his characterization and his choices. Clark is trying to ignore the criticism, to swallow his fears and insecurities about Lois, being belittled at work. And because he's human, he does what we do when we're under attack and a cloud of negativity. He directs his frustrations at another. Clark is supposed to be securing a story on the Friends of the Metropolis Public Library, but his attention is still on the Batman, a vigilante who, by his reckoning, is intentionally caught causing collateral. He's the one that should be criticized. He's the one the press should cover. Why are they coming after him? His investigation and reasons might be fleshed out in the ultimate cut, but you can see why most of this would be unspoken as is, allowing the audience and Clark to work it out. Clark goes after the Batman in his interview with Bruce, but then gets swept up in a montage of rescues. Again, consider the characterization and the context. Bruce's bitter words are still ringing in his ears. He's a joke, a threat, a clown. Clark is worried that the Superman threatens his life with Lois. The one thing he strived for, acceptance, might be lost at the expense of a symbol that was itself coming under fire. If Lois abandons him for the Superman, and the Superman is abandoned by the world, what does he have left? Clark wants to help people. He still wants the symbol to mean something, but at what cost, and to what end if people are already beginning to doubt? He's still human at heart. Like us, he needs love and acceptance to go on, especially after finally having it, especially when he had intended to commit himself to Lois for life. In that context and in that lens, you can understand the somber tone, the selection of music, the ambivalent talking heads, and Clark's dejected expression after it's all said and done. 
We're one-third through the movie, and people wanted this to be a point of victory, inspiration, and certainty. For Superman to smile, confidently comfort, and warmly inspire. But that's completely besides the point. Superman has a journey to go through, which is undermined by that want of comfort food or coddling. The world is literally asking, must there be a Superman? Calling into question his purpose, his usefulness, his reason for being. Challenging his very existence. And that's hurtful, discouraging. And on top of it all, exactly the question Clark's weaker self, his darkest fears, are asking of himself. Does he need to put up with this? Must there be a Superman? A smiling, satisfied, confident Superman. Superman in this scene is an insincere answer without cost or consequence. It's sacrificing substance for the saccharine without understanding why his public persona is weighing on him. Clark isn't even sure what the Superman is supposed to be, and the pundits are already taking the symbol away from him. Instead of hope, it's being interpreted as a deity, a political actor, a threat to identity, or as a call to fanatical followers. Maybe Clark could rest that all away with a word, but what word? He never wanted his story to be told. He never wanted to be a god. He never wanted to rule, preach, teach, or terrify. What can he say that his actions don't already? Clark stuffs all that down, and his frustrations bubble up at work. He fights with Perry, and he's pushed over by photos showing the harm of Batman's handiwork. Angry and put upon, Superman strikes out at the Batman. Now briefly, in between, we have the apocalyptic sequence, which doesn't factor into Superman's character arc chronologically, but it reinforces the point that Superman's goodness is willful and deliberate, conscious choices, and not an autonomous reflex or irresistible impulse. It shows that Superman can go astray, and that we can't just assume his goodness as a an absolute. It reinforces that Lois's love is something that he holds above all, and that its loss threatens to warp his character. The next substantive scene for Superman is Senator Finch urging Superman to come to Capitol Hill. What she's asking for is relatively reasonable given the circumstances, but I want to focus first on Lois and Clark. Lois visibly exhales when she sees Wallace Keefe, a known critic of Superman, a Black Zero event victim, and someone being given a platform to speak out against Superman. Lois's pain at the possibility of a witch trial against Clark, first and foremost, because she loves him. Put it another way, Senator Finch also wants Superman to testify on what happened in Africa. Consider Lois's involvement in that, her own ability to testify in that, and the guilt she feels about it. Yet the filmmakers focused on her concern for Clark rather than her own issues with Africa in that moment. Lois puts Clark first. Clark, again, is shown to be conflicted, and having put the Batman behind him for now, he can't use the bat as an excuse or distraction anymore. Senator Finch is calling for accountability, truth, and a conversation. She wants to know if he sees the cost and how he will act in the future. It's an uncomfortable conversation to have. They will confront him with people who have suffered and who hate him. It would hurt the man and it could hurt the symbol. But in the end, there could be clarity. There's a reason to be optimistic that the Superman could speak and reassure the country. It's not an easy decision. Confronting his detractors, Congress, and the world is a big step. Clark turns to his mother for guidance. Now note, he doesn't call Lois and I think that reinforces forces my characterization that he's worried about Lois withdrawing out of obligation to the symbol of the Superman over Clark. In a sense, he already knows what Lois is going to say, that he should 
clear his name, speak up, out, and for the Superman. But among all the other complications and uncomfortable confrontations, Clark wonders if supporting the Superman is going to end up costing him Lois. So he doesn't seek her advice, just like Clark didn't seek Martha's in Man of Steel. We played you that scene earlier in this episode. Before Zod's ultimatum, in learning about Clark's people, her one fear was that they would take Clark away. And his one reassurance was the promise not to go. Yet Zod's ultimatum demands exactly that. Clark knows what he has to do, but he's wrestling with it, so he seeks a compassionate sounding board. Here, Clark thinks he knows how Lois feels about the Superman, but he's wrestling with what Clark Kent should be willing to pay so that there can be one. Despite everything else going on, in a larger sense, Clark still knows that the majority of the people feel that the world needs Superman, so he can't just seek out another stranger sounding board. Martha is the only one who knows the real Clark Kent, and who might advocate for Clark, and she does. With her few lines, she absolves Clark of responsibility, placing that on the hatred and misunderstanding of his detractors. She says that his actions have already cleared him, and reinforces the idea that the Superman is just an abstract thing. A hero, monument, angel, or inspirational multi-tool, it's not his duty or his debt to be it. The symbol and the suit are separate from her son. Martha wants to protect Clark, and doesn't want the Superman to take him down out of misplaced obligation. She doesn't want the symbol to obscure the beautiful truth, the humanity of her son. Martha grants Clark the grace that the world wasn't willing to extend, honoring his free will and ability to choose. But we know he ultimately does attend the hearing. So what was the point of her advice if he doesn't take it? It shows that Clark completely counted the cost of his decision, that there was still someone who knew him and understood him who said, you don't have to do this. It wasn't something that had to be done in an absolute sense. He could not show, not speak, but he goes because he has hope. He is optimistic that he can survive the confrontation, that he can take responsibility for the cost, that he can give the country clarity, that the people will accept his answer, that the Superman can go on to help and inspire hope, and that his love of Lois will survive. Snyder completely respects and understands Clark Kent and the Superman by showing that the station doesn't just drag the person along, but that Clark has to, every day, decide to don the cape to be Superman. It's a choice that the person makes, not easily or effortlessly or as an inevitability, but out of character, conviction thought through, not as a compass following a mysterious ambivalent force, but free will. For the critics who claim Superman has no agency, they're shortchanging the scenes leading up to the decision to attend the hearing and the decision itself. It's not Superman just shrugging and going along with it. These are existential questions that go to the core of who and what Superman is. The Superman is a selfless servant, here to help, and so the symbol puts aside its needs and wants for the sake of the people. But there's a person behind that symbol who has to put those principles into motion at personal cost. It's like how a soldier may stand for the defense of freedom, hearth, and home, but at the end of the day, there's still an actual person who has to take up arms who has to pay the personal cost, the symbol isn't free. The symbol is also undefined and uncertain in this world. Unlike a soldier, Clark doesn't have thousands of years of history to draw upon to determine what the Superman is or should be. Whenever Steve Rogers doubts, he can draw strength from a pre-existing concept larger than himself, the tropes of what a soldier is, to encourage himself and others. Steve wanted to be a patriotic soldier, something already clearly defined, something that already existed. Clark 
is creating something from scratch, whole cloth, the concept of the Superman as he goes. And already others are taking control of the concept, twisting the symbol before he can solidify what it is or means. People are packing on extra conflicting messages onto his concept. Hero, angel, monument, god, demon, state-level political actor, the will of the people, tyrant, war, time bomb, alien, etc. When Diana says they don't know how to honor him, except as a soldier, that's not a throwaway line. It's because the concept of superhero is novel, new. It doesn't exist in this universe until Clark shows the world what it is and what it means. They don't have a word for this thing yet. They don't know the rules. He fought for us in Smallville, alongside our soldiers in Metropolis and against Doomsday, but he was never a soldier. They don't know what to call it until Clark creates it, and they will honor him by naming it after him. Superhero, as in Superman, as in we expect all of you who become and bear a little piece of his name when we call you superhero to be like him and his symbol, a little in his likeness. Until the term is created, the debate is framed using the Superman, the preposition prefacing an idea and not a person. It's one of the reasons we shouldn't be surprised at Batman's behavior, because he isn't a superhero until the end. Just like Lex isn't a supervillain until his confrontation with Superman. That super concept, that bundle of values and ideas, doesn't exist as a code or as a thing to aspire to yet until Superman shows it to him. Batman is living up to the ideal of a crime fighter vigilante. Zorro's sword cut villains down and ran them through. Wonder Woman, in a century past, could call upon on what a warrior was to define herself. But Clark is constructing a thing cobbled together from a name given by others, values given by his family, a goal given by another, and culture from his country. It's only the vague outline of a thing, not something that says how to deal with international borders under time pressure, or specifically what he should be saying to the whole world. Clark's framework is that of a farmer, someone who patiently cultivates, who diligently harvests, and who humbly feeds. It's how he was taught to help people. None of that meant making speeches, navigating international politics, or representing some sort of spiritual or moral figure. Even going by Jor-El's admonitions, it's a single speech, not a systematic structure for your life, much less a way to say anyone else should structure theirs. Clark's forging his own path in unknown territory, facing questions he wasn't equipped to answer. It's part of the reason Clark is so upset with the Batman, because he's battling for the soul of the superhero without knowing what that is or what that means. And yet there's this this other brutal bat concept out there, which has been embraced by some and which stands against what he thinks the symbol is trying to do. He knows the shield stands for hope. So the superhero is meant to be and represent hope. But all Clark sees in Batman is concession and resignation to darkness and a lesser evil. The symbol is still in its infancy, amorphous and unclear, but it means something to Clark. It matters, which is why he ultimately decides to defend it before the Senate committee. Maybe together, they could understand it better. It's not a misunderstanding of the Superman. It's pursuing an understanding of the Superman. Note that Senator Finch is essentially engaging the symbol of Superman, but has faith in the person behind it. Nothing in her hearings questions Superman's anonymity or secret identity. It isn't about acquiring leverage over his person. She rejects shadow interventions and Lex's silver bullet deterrence plan, but clarifying the role of Superman in relation to the country and the world. She optimistically believes that a conversation would clear things up, and that's a reasonable position. In the show notes, you can find a video on the interaction of deterrence and conversation. 
conversations. When Superman arrives, we cut away to reaction shots at Raleigh's diner with Martha Kent. She looks completely anxious because she knows how troubled Clark was in visiting her. She knows how sensitive her son is, how open his heart. She knows how much being confronted by the victims and critics is going to hurt him. But most of all, she knows that this is his commitment to being Superman, despite the cost. She can respect and honor the idea of Superman, but that doesn't stop her from worrying about him. A military family may hold service in high esteem, but it doesn't stop them from having that same anxious look when their serviceman or woman ships out. Those closest to Clark know the struggle that he had to go through to decide, so it's more uncertain to them. However, those who approach him mostly as a symbol are more confident in their predictions based on less data. Senator Finch rolls her eyes at Lex and pushes past him when the Superman is confirmed to have arrived. Lex's plan anticipates Superman's arrival, as do the protesters outside. It's an interesting show of faith in Superman from his detractors, reinforcing his consistent track record. I'm skipping the hearing to keep focused on Superman's characterization, but when the bomb goes off, note Martha's shock and the look of anguish on Lois's face. Intellectually, they can calculate that Clark is probably fine, but their first instinct is that he's human, and they can't curb their emotional instinct that Clark would be hurt. For Clark's part, he's utterly defeated. He's unreachable for some time before he shows up with Lois, and we can imagine some of the thoughts that ran through his mind. If humanity is this hateful and destructive, they'll never join him in the sun. The Superman is pointless, a failure, and worse than that, a liability to anyone around it. Clark is crushed at the blow to his faith in humanity, and he feels like the world might be better off without the Superman. Lois was in Nairobi. She was in Washington. What if Lois was there by his side supporting him? Another casualty. He had to let her go too. For her sake, despite his hope and best efforts, his world was gone. Someday, maybe, we'll break down the scene between Clark and Lois on her hotel balcony in more depth, but I want to keep with the overall theme in his journey and not get too derailed by every detail. I want you to remember the last time these two saw each other. It was when Lois was springing the secret of the bullet on him and going to Washington to take on something that he said he didn't care about instead of staying with him and his surprise dinners, flowers, and spontaneous romantic gestures. Heartbroken, disillusioned, and feeling an utter failure, he blames himself, his belief in the Superman, his optimism, his father's unrealistic dreams, and the world. At first, Lois literally can't reach him, and then she can't reach him figuratively. They're cross-talking as if in different conversations. Clark takes responsibility, and Lois tries to tell him that there are others behind this. It was a bombing, so intellectually he knows that, but he can't hear her. He faults his view of the world for the attack. He faults the Superman. And Lois sees his pain and wants to encourage him, and does it not by directly comforting him, but by defending the Superman again. The thing that put them apart through everything so far. Her intentions are right, and everything she's saying is right, but Clark is wounded, discouraged, and wants to be done with the Superman. He's not in the headspace to receive it right. Truth is complex. No one knows better than a Superman fan that you can do everything right and still be received wrong. Lois defending and siding with the Superman, the very thing that's going to keep him from her, to keep her safe, the thing that has turned his world of love and acceptance into rejection and terror, her defending Superman is the last thing he wants to hear. His response to her amounts to, the Superman is dead. Bury it. He retreats to the solitude of the mountains. And I love this. 
Solitude is so true to tradition. It shows the separation of the person of Superman from the position of Superman, and it shows how sensitive and human Clark is, and it illuminates his character. I've seen it said that when the chips are down, Superman should be the one who holds on to hope, and that's true for a seasoned Superman who has merged the person with the position. But it doesn't apply to somebody who's still seeking to define the basic concept of a superhero. It's a nice sentiment, but one to be reasonably skeptical of if absent any grounding in reality. If you've been Superman for several years and your experience supports that sentiment, it's sane. But if it's not something tested and tried and forged through endurance, then such hope is hollow. It's not the kind of hope from which you derive strength. It's just a delusion and shallow. Real hope is hard fought for and earned. The people who have the real thing know it from experience. As an alternative, I've seen it said that Superman should have been enraged and angrily hunting down the perpetrators. And I'll grant you that Clark has a temper and can't stand to see injustice. But he doesn't see this as a matter of justice or truth. That's how Lois saw it, that there is an underlying lie to reveal. To Clark, he sees this as an expression of human nature and the futility of the Superman. Even if he writes the wrong, even if he exposes the lie, it doesn't change the ability to literally kill everyone closest to him unless he gives up hope and judges humanity cynically as a threat and always ready to do evil. What little Clark knows about the symbol is that it is about both protection and hope. And if he hopes, he can't protect them. And if he protects them, he can't hope. It was all just a dream. It was never real. And getting angry wouldn't change that. If he couldn't give them hope, he'd at least keep them safe while he sorted out his soul. Instead of continuing to act like a walking target among them, risking potential collateral, Clark seeks solitude. Note that the world as a whole hasn't rejected him yet. Jenny reads the line, How can he simply disappear at a time when we as a nation need him more than ever? Clark thinks he's rejecting the Superman and their acceptance for their sake to protect them. He ends the conversation with the world thinking he's only hurting them. In truth, he hasn't abandoned his principles. He still wants to help to protect, but he doesn't know how to anymore. Like in any loving relationship, you can have a fight where you still love each other and are still committed to each other, but have a moment where you don't know how to communicate or connect with each other. After a whirlwind love affair and two-year honeymoon, this was their first real fight. Clark's sensitivity and vulnerability means he can be hurt this badly. He knows true sorrow, and he has the full gamut of our experience. As bitter and painful as that might be, it reaffirms the beautiful truth. Clark's humanity, it's how he identifies with us completely, and he knows what it truly means to need hope. Only through that kind of vulnerability can he have the same depth of compassion he demonstrates. It makes his character and his moral strength real and not just superficial situational sophistry. We're literally shown the workings of his mind in arriving at a moral conclusion, not as a reflex, but as connection. When Clark is at his most down, most desperate, he has the healthy habit which comes from his character. Overwhelmed, what does he do? He gets away, clears his head, and in meditation, isolation, and introspection, without the distraction and din of the world, he recenters, figures out who he is, and where he had thought to be alone, there he connects with his humanity and is with all the world. The saying in his suit made real, a paradoxical truth. The Jonathan Kent scene is so powerful and moving on many levels. When he's at his lowest and his most desperate, when he needs guidance, who comes out but his dad? So vividly alive in Clark's heart, mind, and soul. Clark's strength and support comes from the spirit of connection, a loving tie, and an intimate bond that not even death can break. His dad doesn't exactly have an answer. 
because there isn't one. It's human nature. There's no solution to that. Nothing will change that circumstance. There's no fix for that. Humanity will always be divided. There will always be rejection and heartbreak. In an ongoing relationship, these issues will always come up. The only thing his father can do for him is say, You are not alone. I've been there too. I've felt what you felt. You want to do good. You get called a hero. But others get hurt. And I know it's going to affect you, son. Because it affected me. And Clark knows it. And he says, did the nightmares stop? Jonathan didn't say anything about nightmares, but Clark knows Jonathan so well and intimately that in this vision or memory, he knows that Jonathan had them. And Jonathan replies back that they did with love. Whatever the situation, love is what heals, what helps, what gets you through the difficulties and gives you faith to go on. The bonds and the ties that we maintain with each other is our hope. You are accepted. You are loved. You are not alone. Clark works through his ethics, his principles, his priorities, and puts compassion and connection first again. We see parenting and principles, character and free will at work, not as a magical compass or compulsion created in a cave, but as real human psychology, where Clark goes to the well of his own humanity to encourage himself to do the right thing for the right reasons, not as a given, as an assumption to be taken for granted, but real, meaningful soul-searching, something that you or I can do, and that's inspiring, that's real hope, not just the lottery of perfect magical parents who instill an effortless instinct to do good always, meaningless to anyone without that fairy tale upbringing. Clark embraces the beautiful truth and returns to Metropolis. When he catches Lois, she says, you came back twice. In story, it comes across as surprise, but I like to think that the first time she's saying it to the symbol, the Superman saving her. But the second time, looking into his eyes, cupping his face, her beloved, she's saying it to Clark and they kiss, truly connecting for the first time since Lois left for Washington. To Lois, Clark's departure wasn't out of character. It was exactly what he said he would do years ago if his story got out. He'd go away to protect them from his secret. It was something that he had done so many times before, disappearing like a ghost. Somehow, he had held on until now. But with the heartbreak of the bombing, she could see in his eyes him cutting ties, ghosting again. However, throughout the film, they share souls through their eyes. In Africa, in their apartment, at the planet, and on the balcony. Here and now, she knows that this isn't just a visit or rescue. She knows in his eyes and in his kiss, he was back. She smiles because she sees that he's healed. In dependence and connection, he's found some sort of strength and peace. A piece that Lex immediately tears to shreds, taking Clark's most vulnerable connection of all and turning it against him totally. Superman is literally brought to his knees. I'm running long, so I can't give this the attention it deserves, but I have to bring this back to the beginning and point out Lex's ugly lie. It isn't merely a matter of perspective or difference of opinion. No, Lex knows his imposition upon Superman is a lie. He knows Clark Joe is human and has a mother, Martha. He isn't under the illusion that Superman is only a distant god, divorced from humanity. That's simply his cell to the world, not what he knows about Clark. He couldn't care less about Clark's humanity, save for how it lets him leverage and stain the Superman. And that informs and explains Superman's line, no one stays good in this world. It's the necessary conclusion after doing the moral math. Clark had decided on the mountain that he would protect the people he loved, hope to do good, but accept 
when he couldn't. And so the film bravely has Superman actually complete the calculation, when most stories would leave it unspoken or have the hero blindly believe otherwise while others set the stakes. Here, the scales are off of Superman's eyes and he knows what has to happen. He still has hope, which is his first line, that he has to convince the bat to help, but he accepts the sacrifice of himself if he has to. He's disgusted by it and he's under duress, but it makes the math no less clear. I want to get to the establishment of the superhero, so we're going to fly through the battle of the bat. Coming from his character, Superman immediately tries to connect with his adversary. Bruce, please. I was wrong. He's addressing the vulnerable human inside the armor, asking for mercy, admitting fault, trying to reach past his hardened heart. Ultimately, that's what happens. At the moment when Clark is at his most mortal and human, with Lois's help and example, he connects to when Bruce was at his most human self, still sensitive, still vulnerable, still loved, then lost. Batman realizes the lie that he's descended into the dark and sees the truth, that they're the same, they're connected, that they don't have to be alone, that they can overcome together, and they do. He makes him a promise, he keeps it, he's with him on the battlefield and in his last moments. Together, they overcome an impossible situation. Together, they defeat the devil and save the world. Together, they'll take on Lex's lie. You are not alone. I won't wax on about it anymore. Hopefully you've read Mark Hughes on how Zack Snyder loves Superman or listened to Brett Culp's moving message of compassion and connection. I was so encouraged coming across them because they said much of what I wanted to say and much of what I felt, and I knew I wasn't crazy coming out of the theater feeling the way I felt. I knew I wasn't alone. Their interpretation was much like mine, and that is such a beautiful truth. You are not alone. Of course, I was a little frustrated because I felt like they said what I wanted to say first, which is why I pivoted and focused on Lex. But for now, I'm not going to go over this again. They and many other commentators have done a stellar job at understanding and expressing the humanity and hope of what happens. I'm going to skip to the moments before Superman's final sacrifice. With everything else going on, Superman says his last words over Lois's protests. I love you. This is my world. You are my world. He smiles because he's completely at peace. He's completed his character arc. Superman struggled because the person didn't know what the position was or if he even wanted it. He didn't know what he was supposed to do and whether he was willing to pay the cost. He struggled to know if he could love Lois and support the symbol. He didn't know if he could have hope and protect. Yet, in this moment, Superman the person and Superman the symbol cooperate as one and all the answers come together in this moment. He hopes that Lois will live a long and happy life, and he has faith that humanity is worth the sacrifice. He loves Lois and is privileged to be able to protect her and the world. He knows he's willing to pay the ultimate price to do so. He knows he can and will do this. He has clarity and conviction. Superman is one. With his sacrifice and successfully saving the world, Superman dies and the superhero is born. In a world without superheroes, Superman created the concept, showed the world a seed of hope taking root in their spirits and minds. The world knows how it treated Superman leading up to his sacrifice, and yet nonetheless, selflessly he willingly gave his life, and all but the hardest hearts have regret, remorse, and repentance. I failed him in life. Men are still good. His sacrifice spoke for his heart. He could and did die for them. He was mortal. He was human. The whole world saw the beautiful truth. You are not alone. We have to stand together. 
Superman started the conversation. He passed the torch, making an essential part of the spark or flame benevolent power used to protect and to serve selflessly, to ensure tomorrow. We can do better. We will. We have to. No matter how you came into power or service, you start there. With Superman's example, his idea, his inspiration. The dream of a farmer. Not soldiers, warriors, vigilantes, guardians, kings, or saints. And in death, the filmmakers made it so that Superman starts the conversation. But the Justice League rounds it out without compromising Superman. So that in turn, the superhero supports Superman on his return. If Superman stayed alive, he and his example would be synonymous with the superhero and what you expect from it. The metahumans would join him, but the concept of superhero would be stifled by Superman, and Superman himself becomes handcuffed by the perfection rather than the expansion of the ideal. I can't stress this enough. The entire concept of superhero doesn't exist before Superman, and even after him, it could be completely defined as somebody who simply silently saves and rescues, but never fights unless he has to, as Superman did. However, if you hand it off to the Justice League, the definition of superhero broadens, it's fleshed out, and it becomes more forgiving without compromising the spirit of the Superman. Let me give you three examples with logistics, laughter, and action. Let's look at how Superman's death saves him from logistics. Look at it this way. Even after Superman dies, the logistics of a superhero still have to be worked out. The questions of state intervention, standing in for or against a nation, of autonomy and oversight are still out there and unanswered. But thank goodness the filmmakers didn't let Superman speak. While a real-world rendering requires that rationalization, we don't want it reining in the spirit and the symbol of Superman. We don't want it to be tied down, handcuffed, and defined by logistics and legalism, actuary tables, and uninspired government mandates. We know it has to happen, but we don't necessarily need to see it. Hand that off to the Bat. Let Batman worry about the politics, the mechanics, the money, and the liability. In a sense, that's what separates the Batman from simply a crazy person, his complicated and successful web of logistics which makes his way work. He's equipped to do it and he wants to turn his lonely legacy of death into a life-giving mission, cooperating with and depending on others. Let the Justice League work out the kinks while keeping Superman's sacrifice ideal and pure. So when Superman returns in the flesh, he can depend on the framework that they've already set up off-screen. Otherwise, you set up Superman to specify the superhero as someone sitting in Senate hearings, sifting every suspected scrap of societal impact ahead of time instead of the symbol he's supposed to represent. Think about laughter and diversity. Superman can't be all things to all people. Within the context of the story, he's many things. He's an alien, an immigrant, a son, a lover, a hero, a human. However, he only has a finite time and a finite set of circumstances to express all that. And in this setting and in this story, his character is best conveyed through a more solemn and stoic sensibility. It undercuts and compromises the symbol if Superman laughs at an off-color joke or if he's so many things he's nothing at all. But pass the torch and let others expand the superhero, and you can get a variety of backgrounds and experiences to inform the ideal. Different races, creeds, and cultures, professions, positions, and politics. And it means more. Bring the flash into the fold and his easy humor. Suddenly the superhero isn't so serious. It's someone who laughs. Bring Superman back in the flesh and he can celebrate his distinction rather than worrying about defending the definition of superhero. He can laugh if he finds something funny without saying, This is the superhero. 
He can be himself within the symbol rather than being the symbol itself. Last example, let's look at action fighting and violence. From the moment we saw Superman on the cover of Action Comics number one, there was an aspect of action and violence to our concept of the superhero. We want this from our superheroes in a way where they're a little more free to fight than can really be justified. If we stick solely to Superman's example, then the superhero can only fight if there's almost no other alternative. If Superman stays alive, he has to be provoked into more violence and more battles than is really reasonable to give us that. However, in death, the conversation of what is the superhero continues, and it's influenced by those carrying the torch. If Batman, a crime fighter, and Wonder Woman, a warrior, keep the conversation alive by recruiting others for the sake of a grand showdown with a cosmic threat, naturally the inflection, connotation, and definition of the superhero will be influenced to include someone who fights. The filmmakers are giving us what we want and expect from the superhero concept, but coming from a logical way that starts with and honors Superman without compromising Superman's example. So Superman can set the spark, inspire the idea, but isn't the soul keeper of the flame after it's already spread like wildfire. Instead of carrying the weight and the burden of forging a new thing for all time and all mankind, he can enjoy not being alone. The diversity and the acceptance of the broader superhero concept. He can rely on the logistics set up by the League. He can fight without angst and laugh without issue. If you run through your mental catalog of superheroes, most don't get saddled with the crazy extra conditions we place on Superman to be inspiring a moral pillar and icon and example. As a full-time job, wake up a hero, brush your teeth a hero, go to work a hero. How many superheroes actually meet this metric while we have no problem calling or considering them superheroes? This broader concept, this diversity of views, this conversation between who and what a superhero is and the dependence upon one another makes them stronger. Batman says he failed Superman in life, not merely because he tried to put him in the ground, but because he failed to lift him up, to recognize him as a brother. Imagine what wonders they could have accomplished if Batman had brought his experience to Superman starting out. Imagine how Superman could have supported and encouraged the Bat if his heart hadn't hardened and been alone. This is the future that Batman is inspired to forge now, with Superman's example and inspiration. He will bring together the others like him, and they will continue to carry Superman's light. Shown it by Superman, Batman now walks the path of the superhero, and in the dream, he took them to the light. In sacrifice and death, Superman is accepted and with all the world. If you seek his monument, look around you. You are not alone. We need to be able to see that and be inspired by what we see in each other, not refuse to be inspired unless we're shown an imaginary other. How cynical that Superman should only survive if he is the best of us, rather than someone who sees the best in us. Because everyone stumbles, everyone falls, and we can't condition inspiration on that unless we're willing to never know inspiration. Superman didn't need a Superman. His inspiration and source is us because he is not alone. He sees his father's hopes and dreams, his father's strength and conviction, his mother's compassion and faith, his lover's sensitivity and tenacity, his virtue, endurance, inspiration, and character didn't come from a single sterling example, but from loving those around him. Because he is so soft and open-hearted, he wants to serve and feed like his parents did. He sees the potential in all of us and wants to protect it like his parents did. He wants to fight for truth and justice like Lois does. He's hope 
not just because somebody says it, but because he lived it and showed it and he inspires because you can use and apply that all today in your life because he showed it and didn't just say it. You are not alone. Look around you. Be inspired. Have hope. For the last time, if Lex is the lie, then let's invert his last lines to look for the truth. The torch has already been lit and they've seen it. But here in the light, God is alive. The flame cannot be put out. He serves. We've found him. And he's here. Okay, I know I've rambled on long enough. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you heard, please review the show on iTunes and subscribe. I'm Doc, your DC Films Justice League Universe apologist, signing off. See you next time. Many of us admire superheroes, but while we wish we were like them, superheroes contend with some major psychological and emotional issues. Batman's traumatized from the murder of his parents. Superman is alienated. He has identity issues. So then, what does our superhero worship say about the rest of us? Well, here to discuss in our Google Hangout, we've got Tony Kim, who's the founder of CrazyForComicCon.com in Irvine, California. Dr. Andrea Letamendi, a clinical scientist at UCLA who's spoken at Comic-Con about superhero psychology, and she's in Los Angeles. And Dr. Travis Langley in Arkadelphia, Arkansas. So hello, everyone. Thank you for joining me today. Hi. 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 All right. A lot to get into, uh, and we will expand this conversation into why it is that we worship superheroes, even though they are fictional characters. But first, I kind of want to run down the line and go through some of the biggest superheroes out there and really target them individually. So I want to start with Superman. So we've seen many iterations of Superman, uh, whether that be on television or in the film. But Tony, let's start with you. What are the issues, the biggest issues that Superman, as we know him, deals with? Yeah, you know, Superman actually uh, was probably my most favorite superhero growing up. For myself, my parents immigrated here from Korea about a year before I was born. So I grew up in a predominantly Caucasian environment. And as a result, I felt really marginalized and, and I felt like a misfit. I, I felt like I didn't belong. And so comics, and particularly Superman, I really identified with because he's the ultimate immigrant. He came from a foreign land, um, had to acclimate, and, and he had to learn to embrace his heritage in order to make a positive contribution to society. And so I think for part of what he faces is this idea of being marginalized and being separated and being alone, uh, isolated. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that he's an orphan and newly adopted. But yeah, I think the the ideas of isolation and being a, a misfit and marginalized, I think, are issues that people from like myself who live in multiple cultures, I think I really identify with. So there's something for, for everyone to identify with when it comes to a superhero. Dr. Letamendi, what, what would you say it is that uh, that really sticks out about Superman? Well, the one thing that I would say about Superman is that people sometimes compare him to, well, he's an alien. So they say he's unrelatable. He has these superpowers. He's not really human. Um, but I actually think the opposite. I think that we can learn a lot about him. He has gone through a lot of, a lot of adversity and loss. He is an orphan, as Tony was saying, but he's particularly pro-social. 
He is hopeful. He's inspiring. And I think that people may um, be surprised, but he does share very common sort of human cognition, emotion, and behaviors. And I think there's something to learn from that. And let's not forget, too, that, uh, you know, he looks pretty good when he's not Clark Kent anymore, right? <laughs> Dr. Lanley, any thoughts you want to share on, on Superman? Well, I do agree that Superman is actually a very human character. He has grown up on Earth. It's in most versions, he's reaching adulthood when he finally learns his origin. He has no idea exactly why it is that he's different. So he grows up as a human being, even with these additional things about him. All right. Now let's move on to uh, to Batman. I think what's interesting about Batman is that unlike his counterpart, Superman, they're, they're kind of the yin and yang of uh, being role models. You know, Superman clearly is a role model. He, he exhibits behavior that is worth emulating. And yet Batman, he's a hero. He's an anti-hero in a lot of ways. And but he's driven through revenge and he's driven through justice. And so the I think that what, you know, if, if I was the character of Batman, I think what I would really struggle with is, is my lifestyle sustainable? Does it, is my lifestyle worth emulating? And I think, you know, I think we've all been wronged a lot of ways, uh, hopefully not to the extent that uh, Batman was by being an orphan, becoming an orphan. But yeah, I think that's a that's a big issue is is what kind of hero is Batman and what kind of role model is he, is he compared to his superhero counterparts like Superman? Well, uh, you know, Andrea or Dr. Letamendi, um, excuse me, you know, what what would you say about that too in terms of the the impression that it gives or perhaps the example that it may set? Uh, it might be very unusual to actually see a topic like this tackled in a film of this sort. You know, having nightmares, having these um, recollections or, or symptoms of remembering the traumatic event, um, having these panic attacks that are really well represented in this movie. And I have talked to patients who have very similar um, experiences. And so there's a lot of value in this, what we would call a fictional story. There's a lot of real value in that. And I've seen some people who actually complain that he's a hero. No, they need to see that heroes can suffer, that heroes are human beings. That's the important part of what makes them heroes. Their humanity is what's important to us. If they didn't have these human qualities, the ability to get hurt, it wouldn't matter so much that they do these things. We don't want to see the adventure of some robot just going off and doing these things. We want to see a human being in a robot suit. Yeah, yeah. if they weren't infallible or vulnerable, like the rest of us, maybe we wouldn't find them so so uh, inspiring. Sorry, go, go ahead, Travis. Didn't mean to cut you off there. Yeah, I was just say that I love that they introduced that element to the story because we've seen so many different iterations, so many different superhero uh, stories being told now that really the only way to go is to humanize the characters and you know make them more relatable, more real. Um, I, I'm not nearly as experienced as my uh, my nerd doctor counterparts here. Um, but I loved that they showed that. Um, Let me bring in a comment from one of our viewers, Anima A, who says, can we talk about the relationship between the superheroes and the women or love interest? Dr. Letamendi, we haven't even touched upon female superheroes yet, but there is kind of this element too where, you know, these people are, um, they're very isolated and, and how do you manage to have a relationship when such a big part of your life is a secret, when you have to deal with so much of this on your own? Yeah, I'll nerd out here and say that there's a graphic novel uh, by Brad Meltzer called Identity Crisis, and it actually deals with this idea that once you put on this the superhero costume, once you decide that you're going to have this identity and put yourself into this role, you then put in danger everyone that you care about, your family members, your, your relationships. And I think that that theme is revisited a lot in comic books and in film now that there's this broader danger when it comes to being a superhero. And I think it applies not to, just to the women that are in relationships with superheroes, but to the female 
superheroes who also decide to wear the costume as well. This is a comment from Tony68. He said, it's amazing how people fall into this kind of fantasy when real life is so much more strange and incredible. Uh, you know, so on one hand, I guess you could call it escapism, but real life is strange and it is incredible. And so why do we find these superheroes to be, um, you know, to be these characters that intrigue us so much? Yeah, you know, I think, um, you know, we all go to many different comic book conventions. And one thing you see with superheroes is that it's cross-generational, it's cross-cultural. And it's, it's the, the enduring nature of, of superheroes uh, really spans so many different demographic groups. And so I think uh, it's it's really, it's great tool and resource to, to really um, immerse yourself into because it crosses so many different people groups and age, age groups as well. Dr. Letamendi, you want to, I'll give you the final word on this one. Care to weigh in? Yeah, you know, just today watching some of the footage from Oklahoma and the devastating effects of that tornado, you know, it reminds us that life really is traumatic and difficult and distressing. And so I talk about fictional characters in comic books because it's a safe way. It's non-threatening. It's not blameful. It's inspiring. And it helps a lot of people to kind of, you know, relate to characters that they already really love. They already really look up to. And it's a way to kind of have this even playing field. And, you know, again, uses use it as a way to impact a lot of people. You're the answer, son.